One of the things that's great about being good friends is having lots of things in common, but it's also uh, being able to appreciate the differences between one another as well. And when, uh, when Pastor David um, text messaged me about the possibility of coming and sharing with you guys, ironically, we happened to be at Disney at the time. It was during the summer about eight months ago, and um, we were there. We had been there in Orlando for nationals with the National Fine Arts and Youth uh, Conference, and then we stuck around with our family afterwards, and so I got a text while I was in the middle of a sweaty, hot, long line, and I didn't reply right away. And then about five minutes later, I got another text from Pastor David saying, does the cell reception not work in Disney? And I was like, Pastor David, it's eight months from now. I thought I could have a couple of days before I replied. And he texted me back, well, clearly you don't know me very well. Uh, To which I said, well, clearly you don't know me very well either. One of the other big differences between uh, Pastor David and I is, uh, is our palate, our, our taste for certain foods. Um, I am a Taco Bell kind of a guy. Um, I, some of the stuff he eats, I don't even know what it is. Uh, when we go out someplace eating together, I have to just blindly trust him to order. I feel like a toddler. I'm like, Dave, I don't know. what. Can you pick something for me? This picture looks interesting. I don't know half the stuff that's on it. But one of the things that make us such good friends is this idea idea that we have a lot of things in common, but we also celebrate each other's differences as well. And when he asked me to come and share with you guys this morning, um, I noted that it was two days after Valentine's Day, and I got a little nervous. I was like, oh my goodness, what's Pastor Dave going to have me preach about? And I was so thankful that it wasn't Song of Solomon. I can only handle so many fond metaphors. And so I was grateful that it was from the book of James. And um, and then I started to read what the passage is, uh, what the passage is, what chapter four of James had to do about, and I thought to myself, "Whoa, man, this is a heavy passage of scripture." Uh, when I read it, I was like, "Wow, this is about conflict in the church." And as I read on, I read further. I was like, "Murder, fighting, adultery, being enemies with God, loving the world, hating Jesus, conflict, conflict, conflict." And I was like, "Man, what's going on over at Trinity? I haven't been over there in a while, but it sounds exciting." And then I thought to myself, "Well, maybe, maybe this isn't some. Maybe he looked at my life because he knows me so well, and he's like, Mark's life is constantly in conflict, always in turmoil, always." battling. Maybe he has something that he can share with us. And I was like, I'm not sure which I would rather to be true. And uh, this morning, I'm thankful that hopefully maybe none of which is true and maybe a little of both is true. But this morning, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share. And in reality, I am kind of an expert on conflict. or Well, perhaps not an expert, but I've certainly had a heavy dose of exposure to conflict. And allow me to explain a little bit further. As Pastor David shared, Uh, I am the dad of five children, all girls. Is there any other um, hashtag girl dads out there, just out of curiosity? It's a very exclusive fraternity. Dad, uh, Girl moms, you guys are great too, but uh, the dads kind of have this understanding of what it means to have girls that are all dad. For instance... Um, when I love being an all-girl dad because when, I, when, when dad is old and gray, guess who's going to take care of good old dear dad? That's right, it's the daughters. Hashtag boy dads, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Start planning now. because they're. <laughs> but uh, I'm thankful for all my girls. Um, I, I once heard uh, Jim Gaffigan, he's a comedian, I once heard him explain what is it like to have five kids. Um, at one point in our life, we had four children all under the age of two and a half. 
And uh, he explained it this way. He's like, imagine you're drowning and then someone hands you a baby. That's kind of that's what it feels like. And so thankfully, we have survived those years, and our girls have moved past their toddler lives, and, and we're grateful they've survived. But yes, my life is conflict. Now, I'm not saying that, having all, that, that girls have more drama than boys do, but I'm also not not saying that. Um, let me explain a little bit further. So being a dad of all girls, how many of you are parents in the room? How many of you have had kids? How many of you at one time were a kid? Like at one, at one point in your life you were a child? Okay, great. See, you ask those good questions where everybody responds because they have to or it's weird. They're Benjamin Button or something like that. But, um, so you'll understand a little bit of what I, I, I'm going to explain here this morning. So as a dad... Um, my life starts like this most mornings, at least Monday through Friday, when I have to get my girls ready for school. You see, at around 7.30 in the morning, hostage negotiations begin, right? And I feel like I'm on the bullhorn, but I've got this sweet dad voice, right? Like, oh, the cute little ones, they're all snuggled. There's a little bit of drool on their face, not mine. I've already washed that off. And I'm like, sweeties, it's time to get up. We can get through this together. Come on, let's work together here this morning. Time to get up. And they're rolling over and they're throwing the covers over their heads and the intensity starts to pick up in your voice a little bit. Like, guys, it's time to get up now. We need to get moving. I Remember when daddy said last night, you need to go to bed. You have to get up early tomorrow. This is why daddy said that. And then it's like, all right, it's time to get up. You start rattling them around. We finally get them out of bed. And then this is kind of what the morning looks like. It looks, it, it, or at least this is what it sounds like. What do you mean you don't like your pants? What do you mean you don't like your shirt? What do you mean you don't like those socks? Well, find something that you can wear. What is it that you want for breakfast? Yeah, I know you want cereal. What kind of cereal do you want? We have like 50 kinds of cereal. No, we don't have that cereal. Pick another cereal. Yeah, the Lucky Charms is all gone. What else is it that you want? Where's your boots? Where's your coat? The bus is coming. It's going to be here in 10 minutes. The bus is coming. It's going to be here in five minutes. Stop messing with your sister. She, you didn't want her to do that to you. Why are you doing it to her? Knock it off. Where are your shoes? Why don't we have your boats on yet? Where's your coats? Guys, we got to pray before we leave. Stop being crazy when we're praying. I love you guys. It's kind of what the morning looks like a little bit. But that's don't worry. That's just until 830. <laughs> I could go on, but I think you get the picture from here. One of the things that is great about being a dad uh, uh, and the conflict that comes, especially with a dad of all girls, like, for example, um, I've never wanted to punch a first grader in the face before this year. <laughs> you don't need to be near my sweet, precious, pure daughter. Get away from her, little first grade boy. And then I look around the room to make sure his dad is smaller than me. And I'm like, yes, thank you, Jesus, for making me big. Um, I've decided that I need a big dog, like a big, a big guy dog at some point in my life. Mainly something that when my girls are like teenagers and they go for a jog or a run, like, no, you know, shady people are like, eh, it's not worth, it's not worth the effort. Like feed it a little Alka-Seltzer before it leaves the house so it gets a nice froth going as they're leaving. 
But um, as a dad, there is this conflict in me, and there's conflict around me all the time, and uh, that's just kind of the stage of life that we're in. And if you're a parent, you probably have recognized that there's conflict in being a parent. But the reality is, it's not just being a parent that exposes us to conflict. It's not just having siblings that exposes you to conflict. In fact, uh, all of us are exposed to conflict. It's not unique to any certain age group, and I don't believe that anyone is exempt from conflict. The reality is conflict is just a part of our lives. It doesn't take much time to, to look around and find conflict in our world. It's in our news everywhere. It's in your families. It's on your social media feeds. Conflict is all around us. But most significantly this morning, what I want to really focus in on is the reality is that conflict is also in us. Conflict is in our hearts. But why? Where does this conflict come from? Why do we let certain things create hurt and anger and jealousy and envy and selfishness and warring take place in our hearts? Why is there this battle within us? The good news is, is I believe the Bible has a lot to say and share with us this morning about this battle that will help us. Chapter 4 here in James picks up after chapter 3, which makes logical sense. I'm glad he wrote it that way. But in chapter 3, the last couple of weeks, if you were here at Trinity, uh, it, it, we started, they, they started two weeks ago. It talked about in chapter 3 this idea of being able to guard our words and be careful about the words that we use. And last week, Pastor Jason spoke about uh, the need for wisdom and the natural conclusion and progression of things. Now this week talks about the condition of our hearts. So you see, our heart is the source of our words. Our heart is where wisdom and desire take action. And so if we want to be wise and if we want to be careful with our words, it's important for us to understand the condition of our heart. And so if you have your Bible with you or something that has a Bible on it, if you want to open up to James chapter 4, that's where we're going to be spending some time this morning and talking. Um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. That's also what you'll see up here on the screen. If you've got a different translation, that's fine. Uh, follow along with wherever it is. But we're going to start in verse 1 of James chapter 4. This is what it says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend, to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. One of the things that is great about the book of James, but also a little alarming about the book of James, is the, the, the really the graphic nature of the, the wording and the language that James uses. James is one of those great writers that he's going to tell it to you straight. He's going to tell you how things are, and he's going to use a lot of really de, um, descriptive language. And so we read through passages in James, and you're like, man, this is really, really intense. And I think the reason why there is this intensity is because the reality is to get this right in our lives requires 
quite a bit of intensity. This is no small matter in our life. And so let's unpack this a little bit. And James, uh, he starts off here in chapter 4 with this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And in a classic dad move, uh, James answers his question with another question, right? It is not, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Passions at war. This is the first battle that takes place within us. Passions are at war within us. The war of passions is a typical showdown that takes place in numerous different ways in my house, and it usually sounds something like this. Dad, I'm hungry. To which I, my natural reaction, they say, can I have a snack? To which my natural reaction is to say no. But I'm a good dad, so as a good dad, I don't want to shut them down right away. So I say, have you asked your mother? <laughs> right? I said I was a good dad, not a great husband, but that's okay. So nothing like good old mom being the bad guy, right, and saying, no, you can't have anything, but mom's not home. So I'm like, ah, foiled again. And so again, they say, I'm hungry. I want a snack. I want something to eat. And I say, do you know what time it is? No. Dinner time is in a half hour. Should you be eating a snack right now? You know, trying to help them think through logically and, and reason. And maybe that's my problem. I'm trying to think through logic with a kindergartner. Um, and like, no, I, I don't know if I should be eating. I know that my tummy is hungry and tummy wants snacky, right? So uh, I say, well, what, what happened the last time you ate a snack before dinner? I don't know. <laughs> of course you don't know. You didn't eat your dinner. That's what happened the last time you had a snack before dinner. So no, you should not have a snack right now. But, and here it is, the little eyes get big, the pupils inhumanly dilate, the little puppy dog eyes have but I'm starving. <laughs> I'm starving. I, I love, I'm like, listen, this little kid wouldn't know starving. But, all right, fine. But listen, as she scampers down, get a healthy snack, as she grabs an Oreo. I don't know why that's healthy. But remember, if you don't eat your dinner, then we'll have this same exact conversation tomorrow. You see, she has these passions at war inside of her, and I have these passions at war inside of me. And I love the way that the Message Bible paraphrases this section in James chapter 4. It says it like this, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way, and you fight for it deep inside yourselves. One way to think of this verse is to say the reason that we have issues with other people is because they aren't doing what our heart wants them to do. My daughter desires to feed her cravings and my desire is for her to obey. She's not getting her desire so she persists. I'm not getting my desire so I push back and we continue this battle until someone has won. Now, this may seem like an oversimplification of the greater battle at war within our hearts, but in James, this is essentially what he's referring to. You see, the conflict all around us comes from the conflict that's inside of us. Let me say that again. The conflict all around us has its root in the conflict 
that is inside of us. The reason why we have conflict in this world is because we have a battle going on inside of us. There is conflict inside of us. God's word in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, reminds us that our hearts are wicked and deceitful and cannot be trusted. But what does the world tell us? The world says, trust your heart, follow your heart, listen to your heart, do what it says. If that's not conflict, I don't know what is. And so naturally, the next battle that takes place within us is the battle for your heart. The battle for your heart. You see, the Bible mentions the heart 826 times in the Bible. In fact, it only mentions sin 340 times. So almost three times more the Bible talks about and teaches about and reflects on our heart. I think it's safe for us to infer that the reason why this happens is God recognizes that if the battle can be won in our hearts first, then the battle that we have with temptation and sin is much more easily won. And so it all starts with the condition of our hearts. The Gospel of Mark records in chapter 7 when Jesus is teaching, he states, it's not what goes in your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out of your heart. James gives a snapshot of what comes out of our hearts in verse 2. He says, you lust for what you don't have and you are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and you risk violence to get your hands on it. That's another paraphrase from the message. We war and we fight to snatch from one another what God would give us freely if only we approached him with a humble heart. This is what we see James saying in verse 3 of chapter 4. We often have heard this verse as, you have not because you ask not. And our deceived hearts interpret that to mean if I say the right words, if I say them in the right order, if I use the right equation, if I formulate the right prayer, then God will give me whatever it is that I desire. But we've misunderstood what is, what is being said here. In reality, these verses and others like it tell us that it's not the proper sequence of our words. It's the proper positioning of our heart. Can I say that again? It's not the proper sequence of our words. It's not saying the right thing. It's not having enough faith and, and, and saying the right things to move God's heart. It's having the proper position of our heart before God. God desires a humble heart. A humble heart is repentant and asks according to God's will. A humble heart seeks God's truth and is more interested in what he wants than our own desires. You see, I've realized that 90% of my problems stem from my own selfishness. In the spirit of honesty here, two days after Valentine's Day, I'm going to be real with you about my heart, and hopefully you also can sympathize what I'm saying. But the, the, the majority of my battles in my heart come from either my desire to be comfortable or my desire or my determination to stay comfortable. Those are the two primary motivating factors in my life, to either get comfortable or to stay comfortable. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. 
I try to be a good husband, and my wife is, is teaching, and so uh, I recognize I tried a little bit harder around the house this year to, to make, keep the house clean, to keep the house moving, things like that, and, uh, and, and yet you have to remember there's this motivation in my heart to stay comfortable or get comfortable, and as I sit from my comfortable position on my couch and I look around and see that the house needs cleaned, that is not comfortable. See, doing nothing is comfortable, right? Staying seated is comfortable. Cleaning, not so much comfortable. And yet there is this battle that takes place in my heart because I know that if I were to clean the house up, it would be such a blessing to my wife. And so battle, battle, battle in my heart. And so this war wages on inside of me, and a half an hour later, the scattered bodies of my comfort foes are spread over the battleground, and I emerge victorious, ready to clean the house. And before I can get up off of the couch, this sweet voice from the other room of my wife comes in and says, honey, would you mind helping clean up the house a little bit? And then all of a sudden, over the horizon, through the fog of the battlefield, as the sun breaks, a new challenger emerges, and it's called pride. <laughs> Am I the only one that is stubborn about doing something I already know I needed to do, but now that somebody's asked me to do it, I don't want to do it anymore? There is this conflict and this battle that takes place inside of me, and I think I figured out what it is. Just like it says here in, in, in James chapter 4, it points out that it all has to do with the proper motivation of my heart. I don't really want to clean the house to serve and to bless my wife. I want to clean the house to prove that I'm a good husband, uh, to, to get her to recognize the great things that I'm doing around the house. Really, the motivation of my heart is for her approval, for her love, for her indebtedness, for her gratefulness to me. You see, I love being loved more than I love loving. That's the conflict inside of me. That's the battle that's taking place inside of me. I love being loved more than I love giving love. It's, it's easy to see in this section here in chapter 4 as he warns us the dangers of loving the world and how this makes us enemies with God. Let's pick back up in, in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that, this, that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that, as he, um, that, uh, that he may dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, there is this battle inside of us between the world versus God. The world versus God. It's simplistic to claim that the, that the world is not our friend, and yet we make friends fairly easily with the world. 
with materialism, with prestige, with acclaim, with sensuality, with pride. We welcome it into our homes. We know their jokes, we know their nicknames, and we feed off of the world's energy. Anyone who claims not to be friendly with the world probably only deceives themselves. But you may say, whoa, 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 aren't you being a little harsh? I mean, I, I love God, I'm, I'm faithful. Isn't it also okay for me to want a little bit for myself as well? And this battle takes place within us between the world and God. Verse five reminds us that the Holy Spirit is jealous, that he alone would dwell in us. It seems strange to think of the Holy Spirit as jealous because typically when we think of jealousy, we think of petty and controlling, but he is neither petty nor controlling. I love the way Dick Brogdon explains this in his devotional, A Jealous Spirit. He says this, The Spirit yearns for us to be devoted exclusively to him. The Spirit is unconditionally committed to us and expects the same unreserved commitment from us. Anything less is betrayal because there is no room for third parties in the salvation covenant. The Spirit of God longs for our friendship and our fidelity. This is not the pathetic longing of the lesser for the greater. This is the unfathomable longing of the great God of all creation for reciprocal friendship with lowly, sinful people. It's a double wonder. First, that God would love us and save us. And secondly, that his spirit would, be je- would jealously yearn for exclusive friendship. Let us not be fools who choose, who choose friends who would destroy us rather than God who alone can complete us. The conflict in our heart is the same conflict that has existed since the beginning of time, the same conflict that started all the way back with Adam and Eve. Our sinful hearts desire to be our own God. The same conflict that wages on in the world today. I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. I want to be my own God. And the Bible tells us that this is a broken heart. It's not the way God intended it to be. And so God gives us his heart in Jesus, the heart of the Savior, the heart of the Savior. And this is God's grace, his love for us, shown through the person and work of Jesus. And so the incarnate Savior, God with us, Jesus, walks into our soiled world, onto the battlegrounds of our life, and offers unexpected friendship. But this friendship does not come without a price. You see, in battle, somebody has to fall. Someone needs to die. And yet, because of his great love for us, he pays the price for us as well, exchanging his life for ours, his beautiful heart for our war-torn hearts. The external conflict around us starts with the conflict that's in our hearts. I no longer need to win and get my own way because Jesus has already won on my behalf. I no longer need to covet what you have because I already have all that I need given to me in Jesus. I get to serve you and love you without strings attached because God has provided all the approval that I need. 
I don't need to judge or compare myself to you because the one true judge who had every right to sentence me guilty instead gave me mercy. And so now I can extend mercy and grace to you as well. Now, I may have painted a picture for you that my family is constantly in conflict and turmoil, but the reality is that's not true. Yes, there is conflict, but I also see these beautiful glimpses of God's perfect plan as well. You see, it's in those in-between moments that I get to see what his plan is. I see it when I look into the playroom and I see my girls playing together and I see God's perfect harmony. I see it when one of my girls gets hurt and the other three rally around them, coming to their protection, coming to their aid, and I see God's perfect care and compassion. I see it when my, I get to cuddle with my girls and we read books together and we laugh together and we play together, that even in the midst of the day's highs and lows, there is perfect forgiveness and unconditional love. So what is it that you need this morning? What is the conflict in your life? Is your life in need of harmony? Does it seem like every relationship that you have is out of control? Then draw close to God and he will bring you peace. Are you in need of healing this morning? Do you find yourself broken this morning, in pain, hurt, worn out, or just feeling thin? Then draw to God and find rest and repair. Are you in need of hope this morning? Maybe you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus yet and accept his free gift of salvation. Then humbly come before God and confess our sin. That's the only position that a humble heart can come before the creator and recognize they can't do it themselves, that they need a savior who has already provided everything they have. And then in doing so, we find our identity and we find our purpose as a child of God. Or perhaps this morning, this was just a good reminder that there are people in conflict all around us every day. And instead of engaging in the conflict, we extend mercy and grace because of the amazing mercy and grace that we have been given. As one who is highly experienced in conflict, I know this much about conflict, love, wins the battle within every time. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we are thankful. We are thankful this morning that we are not left on the battlefield by ourselves, but you have entered the battle for us, that when you sent your son Jesus, you sent him to be the victor for the battle. But what, what interesting, bittersweet uh, war took place that it, it took the falling of our Savior to win the battle for us. But we already have victory through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that your word this morning reminds us that he did it out of his great love, that, that you desire relationship with us, you desire connection with us. And so, Father, we pray this morning that if there is anything else that we have allowed to sit on the throne of our heart, anything else that we have added to your, your goodness that it should not be there, anything that we have replaced it with, that you would expose it for the lie that it is and that Christ alone would sit on the throne of our hearts. 
For those who need a relationship with you this morning, Lord God, I pray that we would position our hearts humbly to hear from you, to find healing from you, to confess that we are in need of a Savior. And we thank you that you provide everything that we need. Lord, as we go about our days and our weeks, we pray that you would make us aware of the conflict around us and let us replace it with grace and mercy and love and watch it transform the lives of not only ourselves, but those that are around us. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for hope that is found in Christ alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.